listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast, the official companion podcast to the book Scored to Death, conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and the book is available from Selman James Press. It features 14 in-depth interviews with renowned film music composers that have made significant contributions to horror and have worked with some of the genre's greatest filmmakers. It is available on Amazon and from other book retailers. The goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. Today's episode is part two of a detailed discussion with composer and synth innovator Christopher L. Stone. In part one, Chris and I discussed his work in creating sound effects for the films Big Wednesday and Phantasm, as well as the television series Battlestar Galactica and Knight Rider. We also discussed his work as a composer in the Phantasm film franchise, and his collaborations with composer Richard Band on the films Terror Vision, From Beyond, and Prison. This week, we will continue our discussion about the Phantasm films and the differences between visceral and methodical composers, working with John Landis on The Stupids, and much, much more. We've got a lot to get to, so let's get started. I know for a lot of the composers that I've spoken to that work on multiple installments of a series and kind of in their mind, a lot of the way they identify each installment is like what new piece of equipment they used for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for that film. Do you find that is that true for you as well? Yes, yeah, not so much new equipment as now it's new plugins. <laughs> yeah. I guess you could call that equipment, <laughs> but you know, it, it's, it's, it's all plug-in based. Now I went through and I purged my studios, my studio of all outboard gear. Now I don't have a single piece of outboard gear except for a, you know, the, the converter, the D-Day converter, which you have to have as an outboard gear. That and a, that and a, and, and, a, and a set of microphones. And now it's just nothing more than a keyboard, three screens and, you know, surround speakers. That's it. There are times where I could, if I have to, if I had to go down, I could take my entire studio, put it, put it, put it in the back of the car, and bring it wherever I need it. I don't need. I mean, before, before that, I mean, I had racks and racks and racks of gear and so on, but that's all gone. Don't, I don't don't use any of that anymore, except except for the vocoder. That well, I, I have it in plug, but I don't like it, so I I, I use a, a hardware vocoder whenever I need to use that. But other than that, it's pretty darn simple. So uh, gear-wise, no, I'll, up, up, I'll definitely get whatever the you know some latest greatest uh, plugins are. You collect those, you know, like like collect uh, baseball cards. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, that would be the equivalent there of of gear. With Phantasm Two coming right on the heels of Prison, was that also a project done with the Wayframe, or you were working with another piece of equipment then? Well, I don't remember. Probably, I was probably working with emulator twos at that point. There was probably more speed. I just took all the sounds off the off the waveframe and put it into the, into the emulators because it was just more expedient. The emulator, the the waveframe was a massive brick. You know, it was it was like a three, three it was almost like a three foot by three foot black cube, 
And, uh, you know, the emulators I had stacked in the corners. It was just easier to use those, probably. Probably. I don't, I don't remember. Now, my other podcast is kind of based on nostalgia. And so, so we do talk about things like some of the horror movies and science fiction movies you're talking about. And though it's more film-based, I think a lot of people that would listen to my other podcast would be very interested to hear that you wrote a lot of music for Tailspin. I wrote all the music for Tailspin. Yeah, you <laughs> How did you uh, come to start working with Disney, and, and uh, what was it like working with them on a daily television show compared to the projects that you know we've already discussed? That was the most hands-off project I've probably ever worked in in my life. They would just say, well, here's a million dollars. Give us scores. Bye. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're probably down once to take a look at some storyboards in the early early stages. That was it. And I would just go out and record it and bring it back. Well, that was, that was done. A lot of that was done with some very big orchestra stuff because I had the budget for it. So I did, you know, some very large recording sessions at, uh, at the Sony studios, which was MGM back then, you know, it was using like 70 piece orchestras and stuff like that for that show. Yeah. That had a very, very heavy, hefty budget and it was extremely hands off. And, and uh, never really spoke to very many people at all. Is handed me a check, and I handed them music. <laughs> Simple as that. <laughs> and so you had no guidance into like what kind of you know language the music was going to be, what the feel was of the show. I mean, other than looking at storyboard. Yeah, they just said we want a big orchestral score, and and um, you know just just hear hear, hear the episodes and just do it. That was very, very unusual. It would never happen today. Never, ever, never, never. It would be temp, there'd be temp score all over the place. Have you ever heard the expression that, that uh, composers have been using for a while called the temp is God? Uh, I've heard temp love. Well, that, that's another one. Well, temp, temp love, yeah. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a disease that uh, afflicts directors, writers, producers, <laughs> everyone else. <laughs> That is, uh, in, is, it's a communicable disease that is uh, inflicted on composers uh, right up there with any other horrible disease. And I say that because it, it really just destroys your ability to uh, even remember how to compose if all you're doing is doing the monkey see, monkey do thing. It's really horrible uh, what what is what has gone on with that. And and in today's world, had we had been hired to do tailspin today it would have had temp score all over the place they just would have said follow the temp don't do anything else but follow the temp or you're fired yeah and that is exactly the way 99.9 percent of all music is written now yeah it's very sad but that's reality so i kind of got in at the tail end of that uh with with tailspin so uh, i i was blessed by not being stuck in that Quagmire following the temp for every single thing. Now that was part of a Disney afternoon lineup where there were other shows that were already established like DuckTales and stuff. So was there any thought of trying to create some kind of unity with the sound with those things or just go off on your own and just create? Just go on my own thing and create basically after they, they you know, that I played them like the first couple of themes or something like that. And, and after that, I said, okay, fine. Let's just, just do this, 
give us more of the same, send in the music on time, and that's the end of that. When you're working on that many episodes and creating that much music, even though it's only a half-hour show, so it's probably clocking in at 22 and a half minutes of actual show and you're not scoring the whole entire thing, but when there's that much stuff that you have to create, is a chunk of that just using what you've already written and do you have to re-record that or you just use like the exact recordings when you are using some of the more familiar themes? Well, when it came to the big battle themes, battle scenes, things like that, that's when I drag out music from the, the orchestra stuff that I would do. I had like, you know, like two, three hours of orchestra stuff. big, big bombastic fight scene orchestra, you know, they had a lot of battle scenes and where Baloo would be flying through the air and doing all this stuff. And there'd be a whole bunch of things like that. So um, on the larger stuff like that, yeah, I would bring out the big guns on those. Now, when it came to some of the repartee stuff, you know, like when there'd be like little comedic movements and things like that, and where there were some things where you could never use a library approach would be some of the, like the slapstick stuff that would go on. There'd be little little tiny movements that go from place to place and do something, and so it's it, it, you'd have you have to score those individually. And those I would do electronically. Before Tailspin came around, how often were you working with live orchestras of that size? On movies here and there, you know, not 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 in television. None of the, none of the TV things that I did require that was. That was the only time, you know, except when I was working on uh, on Walker, Texas Ranger, where they would do like like specials. They had some things where Walker went back into the past and was a was a was a sheriff was a was a marshal in the past. And those I did, I, I scored those with, with live orchestra. So it would depend on on the size of the movie and the budget and so on. But it was rare for television to have that kind of budget. I mean, because I just imagine for myself, you know, I'm I'm a semi-professional, more amateur musician, but certainly not trained like you are. But even having that kind of classical training, I mean, I would imagine that, especially in the beginning, was it intimidating to have to work with that many people and have to kind of be the captain <laughs> of that ship? No, I was trained for it. But even with training, there's there's no, I don't know. Well, the only thing, only thing like that you could say is that every now and again, you know, before a session, I would, I would have a, a, a recurring nightmare where I would show up on the session and there was no music at all on the stands, you know, and, and that that sinking feeling that you weren't going to be able to make your deadline. The um, I, I have absolutely no fear of getting in front of a large group of people. You know, if I'm the guy, if someone says, oh, my God, someone's got to come up here on the stage and suddenly say something. And, you know, it's being televised around the world and there's like 5,000 people sitting in the audience or 100,000. I'm I'm fine with that. <laughs> I'm there. I, I really I don't I don't have any stage fright and I don't have any fear of conducting at any time for any reason. It's because I I had it so well ingrained. There's no there's no 
ounce of me that has any, any, any doubt or fear of doing any of that. The only doubt and fear you might have is, oh, my God, am I going to meet my deadline? Yeah. That's, that's the only one. Not of working with the orchestra, not with working with conducting or anything like that. Not for me. You know, now I know a lot of people have, you know, have conducting angst, but I, I mean, I studied conducting for years and years and years before I ever I had to get up in front of an orchestra that was doing my own music. So it didn't, it, it just didn't, never bothered me. Yeah. Never occurred to me to be anxious about it. With someone who, you know, in that, in a case like that, or with a television show, and especially in lower budget cinema, where time is always of the essence with deadlines and stuff, do you get writer's block? And if so, do you have any tips for anybody else who writes music that might be helpful to help them kind of get out of it? Oh, that is a really, really good question. Uh, I'm going to give a very disappointing answer. <laughs> Okay. I have never in my life experienced writer's block. <laughs> there's always a way out. And there's so many ways. If you're, uh, there have been times I've looked at a scene and, and I'm going, what the hell am I going to do with this? Sure. It's not the same as writer's block. It's just looking at it and going, wow, what am I going to do? You know? And, I'll be honest with you, you know, I mean, uh, the one thing that tempts I me mean, as much as I, I abhor temp scores, there are huge benefits to it if it's done by somebody that really understands music editing and really understands how to score. The biggest problem, I'm digressing, but I'll come back to this point. The biggest problem with temp scores is, yes, first of all, it's demeaning as hell to, to, to show a composer temp score and say, here, copy this. Imagine going to Rembrandt and saying, you know, here's this Picasso. I don't want you to use your style. I just want you to copy Picasso. You know, you, can you imagine? The guy's just going to look at you and go, uh, I'm Rembrandt, dude. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, okay, obviously I'm not in Rembrandt's category, but the feeling's the same, nonetheless. Yeah. All right, the feeling of being demeaned, you know. Yeah, is, I is understand that, but don't you think that, you know, I look, I, I totally understand, and I've talked to, close to 20 of you guys that, that work in this industry now. So I understand where that kind of frustration comes from. And I, and I totally think it's warranted, but at the same time, uh, like myself, I'm a, my day job is as an editor. And I know that, you know, with the, under the same kind of pressures of deadline and stuff, you know, you have to get things moving. And when you're working with somebody that have specific rhythms in mind, like they, it's sometimes you need those, to get through scenes so that they can be handed to you as who's a composer. You? Who's you? You need him. You say you need him. Who's the, who is the you in this scenario? Uh, I guess me, <laughs> an editor. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Yeah. No, that look, look, first of all, as an editor, you, you understand, first of all, there's no way you can show a, a, a cut to the suits without having temp score behind it. Yeah. They're not going to get it. They're going to say, oh, this is going on too long. You're going to have to cut it down. You, you know that. It's going to drive you crazy. Uh, so obviously, while you're working, you have to have temp score because you can't show something to the suits without a temp score in it. It's not possible. Yeah. You know that, right? Mm-hmm. you agree? Yes, totally. Okay. So so I'm not saying – you know, I'm, I'm just saying that when a composer is forced – yeah. To follow them like a lemming going off a cliff. Sure. That's the problem. And and with all due respect, here's the reason why temp scores are kind of bad being done by editors. In that 
Uh, I hope you're not going to be offended by this. <laughs> I, I, I very likely won't be. <laughs> so feel okay. free. The problem with editors putting in Kemp scores is that they're coming at it from the perspective of an amateur composer. Sure. And what happens is, is that editors that I've worked with in the past have a tendency to go and make a beeline for the cliches yeah. of scoring. And then you end up coming up with something that is, it's, it's not that it's not working. It's not that it's not bad, but it's, it's not, not exactly innovative, not exactly like something that could be done better by somebody who really understands how to steer clear of the cliches. Yeah. You know, that was the thing that I loved about Jerry Goldsmith's writing is that he knew how to write something that was familiar, but he had this innate sense of steering clear from anything that was a cliche and brilliant in that, in that regard. The other problem is that when you get temp scores, editors will, will tend to put together what I would call a smorgasbord approach where that you'll get all of a sudden you'll have a, a, a some jazz band in the next scene. It will be uh, a Bach. <laughs> the next scene, it will be, you know, Miley Cyrus. The next scene, it will be uh, a New World Symphony. The next scene, it's all these genres that get, get mishmashed together. And then when you're told you've got to follow the tip no matter what you do, now you're stuck with all these different palettes. Each one of them costs a freaking fortune <laughs> yeah. to, to, to do. It's like, it's like the classic thing that they say with writers, you know, and in marches the Roman army. You know, and you've got a limited budget and it says in marches the Roman army on in your script. Yeah. That's kind of the equivalent of what editors tend to throw at composers. Sure, yeah. With with, with temp scores is they're not thinking, Oh, wait a minute. It's budget, which means we've got to stick to a palette that can be used throughout the whole thing. Anyway, enough of that. But the the the, the, the point I was trying to get at is about writer's block and getting around it. Yeah. This is where temp scores come in from a composer standpoint. Sure. If I really find a scene I can't figure out what the hell to do, then I start looking around for, for pieces. I'll go to the internet and I'll look at different movies and different approaches, you know, for things. And I'll just temporarily lay in a totally fresh approach, something I wouldn't have thought of, you know. Yeah. And look at that and go, oh, that's a cool idea. Okay. I like that idea, that approach, you know. Like some of the more off-the-wall things, like, like Carter Burwell is just wonderful. I, mean, I think he's a great composer. Because he knows how to throw in really off the wall stuff that works beautifully, and same thing with Tom, you know, with uh, Thomas Newman, who's like one of my all-time favorite composers, because he knows how to really score outside the box, you know. Yeah. He just really takes a radically different approach, you know, than just just the straight ahead, straight ahead. So I'll, I'll look to those things for cues to, to kind of spark my imagination on stuff like that, you know, if it's, if it's not in the temp, right, and, or if there's no temp. And I'll, I'll try, to, try to think of stuff like that. Failing that, then I go back to the basics. I, I think, okay, what's the genre? What's the mood? What do I know in my bag of tricks that I can use to at least cover the mood? You know, yeah. So I, I can never, I can never find myself ever in a situation where I've got writer's block because I, I don't put that much pressure on me to have to be always coming up with the better mousetrap in every instance. I can always look around and try to gather more information that sparks my imagination. 
that make sense? Yeah, it seems, you know, it's interesting that uh, so many of you, the, the composers that I've spoken to, so many of them and, and yourself have so little trouble with it. I mean, but you all have your own ways of keeping the creativity flowing and, and maybe don't suffer from writer's block in the same sense that most people would define it. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. You know, that's a very good point. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, for you coming from a classical education, mm-hmm. working often in the realm of electronic music and sound effects and stuff, do you find that – let me see, how can I word this? Because it's kind of – I found when I was doing the book, I found that you could almost split the composers into two categories. The ones that could watch a scene and kind of instantly hear music when they watch it. And then it, it, it is almost then a matter of just getting it down on paper or in a recording and then working on it from there. But the initial inspiration came to them automatically. And then there were other composers who, uh, I guess for lack of a better term, I would call noodlers where they would sit and play, maybe look for the, uh, find a tone on a keyboard or something and then have that help inspire. But it would be a matter of watching and playing along to it until they find what works and then going from there. Do you find that either one of those categories kind of would describe your method or do you have some other category that you would put yourself under? Oh, I'm just saying the first one for sure. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm under the, again, you, you, you've just, you kind of uh, just described what I was describing earlier, difference between a methodical versus a visceral. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I kind of thought about when you were talking. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I definitely, I definitely, when I, as soon as I see a picture, I will, I will hear it. As a matter of fact, it's really difficult for me to listen to music in general because I'm always picturing picture behind it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, so as soon as I, see, I hear something, I go, oh, yeah, I can picture that. That's a, that would be that would go here. That would go there. You know, any piece of music, I just immediately start seeing picture behind it. Yeah. Uh, I'm definitely a programmatic writer and, you know, from from stem to stern. I can just I can tell you in one very quick way why there are those two types versus the ones that sit, there's the types that will look at it and see it first time and music will immediately come to their heads. Then there are other ones that have to sit there and noodle. And I can tell you exactly why that is. Why that is, it depends on their keyboard playing skills. Okay. If you've got somebody who has spent a lot of time improvising on the piano or improvising on guitar or improvising and doing a lot of improv, they will look at the film immediately know what to write. Now, if you have the other ones who came, let's say they were a clarinetist or something like that, or a saxophone player and got into film scoring, they're the ones that are, are going to have to noodle quite a bit because they don't have that uh, subconscious background of doing a lot of, uh, of improvisation. Mm-hmm. So the improvisers, the ones that can play, the ones that can just sit down at the piano and just start playing anything and, you know, whatever and do all that, and, you know, play piano picture if they had to. They're going to look at the picture and immediately know what to write. Yeah, doesn't mean it's going to be the best. It just means they know what to write. You see, like the guys that want to sit down and be methodical can oftentimes come up with something way better only because they're, they're being more methodical about it and they're taking a more pragmatic approach and doing a lot more granularity to a theme. Yeah, you know, you're gonna you're gonna probably end up with with thematic development that is uh, a lot more precise in nature. By doing it the, the the noodle and methodical way, you know there there's pros and cons to both. The problem with being an improviser 
is that you will tend to rely on a bad habits, which is relying on things that you've done a million times before. Sure. Whereas if you're a visceral and somebody has a noodle, it means automatically they're looking for a fresh approach and looking for something new. So, so I, you know, as a visceral like myself, I have to constantly slap my hands on the wrist and go, no, that's no bad boy. You've done that a million times. Shut up. Start writing something new. Yeah. And you understand what I'm saying? So it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. I could, if I had to, you could, you, if you gave me a movie score and you said, okay, it has to sound like a real good orchestra. And by the way, it's due tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. I will get it done. Will it be the best score ever? And hell no. Will, <laughs> yeah. will, will it work? Yeah. Will everything be covered? Will I meet the deadline? You bet. Will it be a cliche? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? It won't have any of those nuances that you're going to get. I mean, you're not going to get anything like a totally fresh approach. So it's a double-edged sword being a visceral. You know, you, 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 you have to be very, very careful not to fall into bad habits. Sure. It's, it's difficult to do. You know, because obviously this podcast and even my book was a lot about just talking about film music in general and process, even though it's under the guise of this like horror music thing. I'm, I'm much more interested in you as an artist, but because of the idea of scored to death being a horror movie music podcast and a book, part of that stemmed from the fact that I've found uh, being a fan of film music and, and also specifically horror music, but also seeing that there is a very passionate and loyal audience to horror movies, but also the music I'm wondering, as someone that has worked from anything from Disney to Walker, Texas Ranger, uh, to documentary music, stuff like that, do you find that the music in horror movies and fantasy kind of plays a different role in the storytelling than in stuff that's maybe more traditional or mainstream? Well, that's an extremely good question. I'm asking really good questions, by the way. <laughs> You've done this. Well, that's, well, that's the hope, <laughs> anyway. A number of interviews, and I must say, I must say you're, you're coming up with the best questions I've ever been asked. Well, I appreciate that. You, you show, it shows that you've done this a lot. <laughs> you really understand this very, 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 very well. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. You know, I think that horror movies are very much akin to movies that were made in terms of in terms of in terms of how you approach it musically, okay, in, in, in terms of the basics, sure, which is really thematic, okay. You know whether you're using a, a rhythmic pochki, you know, like dee, 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 you know, whatever, it's still melodic, right? So there are very 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 few movies outside of Star Wars where it's thematically driven. And because it's not the style in most movies. And Star Wars is really basically a kind of a Flash Gordon throwback. So, so it's going to have a thematic approach because it's really an old movie style from the 30s being made in modern times. But its heart, it really belongs back to the old, old you know, like, uh, you know, movies where the guys in the B-17 shooting at the aircraft and stuff like that. It goes back to that genre back in the thir late 30s, early 40s, where the theme of a show was very recognizable like you would have the the battle the battle theme or you would have the good guy theme or the bad guy theme okay that's almost never done in conventional shows tv or or movies very very rarely do you ever hear like like the, the bad guy's theme coming off off stage 
and you know, okay, the bad guy's about to come into scene. Never, not now, it doesn't happen. Or the love theme, you know, between the two people, and you got this famous, you know, you know, love theme like that. It doesn't exist in today's genre, but it was it was the way you did things back then. You know, you always write this person's theme or that person's theme. Well, horror films are all about horror film music is all about creating the themes for the the good guy, the bad guy, the chase, the blah blah blah, and you know, and so, and so really from the core nature of writing for horror music, you're really in its core writing music in the way that music was written back in the thirties and forties. Huh. Interesting. Only you're using modern day colors and modern day genres of music to describe it. But in terms of its core essence, it's really thirties and forties music. Thematic. Do you have any opinion as to why it seems to have such kind of a loyal fan base? I mean, obviously we all know sci-fi fans are very loyal and horror fans, especially I think with the advent of the internet and in a way for all of us to kind of congregate and communicate with each other and share our like interests. And then especially with social media, uh, I think all of that has a big part to play in kind of the rise in popularity with genre films and stuff in, in today's age. But is it just the love for the horror film that makes people fanatical for the music, uh, passionate about the music? Or is there something about horror film music that maybe plays to the listeners that love these films that make them want to collect it on vinyl and listen to it like it's almost like it's pop music, which doesn't happen that often in other styles of film music? As a composer, I would love to have the ego to think that it is all about the music, but I don't think that's the case. I think it's an artifact. I think that what's really going on is that uh, people are identifying with a character like a Jason or, you know, like the tall man in, uh, in, in Phantasm. You know, these characters, these recurring characters that they can associate with the music. And there are a lot of horror films out there which never really did take off in terms of the scores or even as a franchise um, because they didn't necessarily, on those, the ones that did not have a clearly defined protagonist and antagonist probably are not going to be as accessible in terms of the score, in terms of a recurring fan base because of that. And I think that what really goes on is, let's say, when you when you hear, you know, like a famous theme, like the Jason theme, right? Um, what comes to your mind immediately? Well, you know, you see the hockey mask in your head. You see, you see the, you see all that stuff in your head. So, so when you're hearing the music, you can actually pretty much see the, see the film, and and for and to some degree, actually create your own movie. Yeah. So that you're like you're like getting another installment of the picture every time you hear the music. So I think the two are the two are married together, and I think it really is the music is an artifact. The fact that that's just a cool genre, you like that character, scares the crap out of you, you like it, makes you creep out. So when you hear the music, you can create your own thing in your own mind. And I think that's that. I think it's the two that go together because I I really don't think that you're going to have the same response from just a generic horror movie that doesn't necessarily have a clearly defined antagonist and protagonist. Sure. I don't, I don't care how good the theme is. I don't think I don't think you're going to get the following. Yeah. I think it's an artifact of the fact that you can picture the scenes or picture a scene in your head when you listen to the music. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about simplicity. Yeah. And you were just talking about how horror is 
you know, in some ways, the style of writing for a horror movie is a little bit of a more a throwback with the themes of the antagonist, the protagonist, which you were just talking about now. Also, yeah. uh, I would say simplicity, repetition mm-hmm. is also a big thing in all, you know, in all film music to a certain extent, but especially in uh, horror films, I would say when, you know, we talk about the Halloween theme or even Williams's theme for Jaws. Well, you know, actually, you know that there's a lot of similarity. Look at, look at what Jaws has got that. Dum, 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 dum. What is, what is, what, what, what is the uh, Jay's theme? Dee, 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 dee. You know, <laughs> it, it, you know, right. So it's all, it's all repeated patterns. So you, you're onto it there. But we also, you know, the other place where we see repetition and then often in, in a lot of cases, simplicity, not always, is pop music. Yes, good, very good point, very good point. And I wonder if that also has something to do with why it's, you know, it seems more listenable to to some listeners, I, should, I guess I should say. Well, I can get into a really deep conversation about this musically. <laughs> but because one of my one of my passions is music science, actually, um, mm-hmm. which is understanding how music actually works inside the brain. And I've studied some of this quite a bit, actually. Hasn't helped me at all musically, but it's just it's just it's just I'm just very curious about it. You know, like why does major make us feel happy and minor make us feel sad? Sure. Which is not not, not necessarily true in different cultures. In fact, sometimes quite the opposite. And I find that I find that very fascinating, and I like to find out more and more and more about it scientifically as to why that is. And so, yeah, and a number of research and reading on this topic. So, without going into too much of that, yeah, the repetition part of it has a lot to do with how we, how how it relates to our heartbeats. Oh, interesting. And how it relates to the tempo, one hundred twenty, for instance, is really. Uh, the, 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 the standard walking tempo of your heartbeat. And so that's why 120 has always been a very popular tempo because of that. Huh. And, and so when you have the repeat repetition like that, it, it, it's, it, it's a synchronization, synaptic synchronization with our, with our metabolic rate. And uh, that's, that's one of the reasons why. So it gets your pumping because what, what you're going to be, you're gonna, your heart rate's going to go up a little bit when you're frightened in a, in a horror movie. So if you've got a repetition part in there, that's gonna that's gonna help to synchronize with your metabolic rate. Huh. So I mean, I didn't want to get too sorry, I didn't need to be too technical about this, but that's that's one of the main reasons why why you need a, a repetitive rhythmic pochki in there in order for it to really do its thing in a in a horror movie memorable theme. It's part. It's, it's a major major component of it. Yeah. Uh, do you have not necessarily a favorite? score or piece of music that you've written but do you have like a favorite project or like session that you were you know something that's memorable about a specific working experience that you look back on fondly oh yeah definitely tailspin (laughs) hands down hands down the creative freedom yeah big orchestra lots of budget creative freedom What's not to like, you know? I mean, it's, it's like, it's like, it's like you know, somebody hands you a million bucks and says, just record a bunch of music, you know, go out and do your thing. And they all come back, you know, say, oh, that was great. Thanks. You know, you know, you know, they were very appreciative of it. It's not like anyone's going, well, I don't know. What are you doing for us now? Where, where's this money going exactly, Chris? I didn't get any of that. So it was, that will always go down in my memory so far as being one of the coolest uh, ones. And actually, I would have to, right right close to that, would have to be, well, actually, there were three that are all pretty much equal. 
I, I, re- I recorded music for uh, the, with John Landis for the Stupids movie, which had a very unfortunate demise in the theaters. But um, the experience of working on that with John Landis was amazing. Wow. He, he, he really is uh, amazing to work with. How so? Ah, uh, his, he, you know, I asked, I was, I was asking principal, principal, uh, a cellist, a good friend of mine, what makes a great conductor from just a good conductor of, of an orchestra? He says, oh, that's simple. A great conductor knows when to make a comment, knows when to, to give people signals as to, and when not to give comment when not to give signals. Yeah. John Landis fits into that. He knew exactly where to let me have my creative freedom and yet knew exactly where to pinpoint guidance. And it was an overshare. It was an undershare. It was perfect share. And he knew exactly how to do that. And when you're working with uh, new directors, it's always overshare. They don't have the experience to know that, you know, you, 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 you just can't squash people's, it's not all about my vision, you know. Same thing with a composer. Fresh, a new composer will do the same thing. They'll just go, well, I'm not going to have anyone tell me how to write music. You know, I'm like, no, you have to listen because it's a, it's, you, you really have to listen to what they want. That's, by the way, that's the danger of another danger of being a visceral. It, it's, 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 it can get you out of trouble in terms of being able to write whatever you need to write whenever you need to. But, boy, is it, it is a minefield. Of problems yeah. if you're not careful and one of the biggest minefields is sure it's great you look at the movie and you hear 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 a piece in your head the moment you see it one little problem with that that may not be what the director's hearing yeah and, and you'd better be able to quickly erase what you just heard and knock that out of your mind as being an indelible ink and start listening to the director mighty quick so that's the danger of just listen, watching a movie and seeing it because that's not being collaborative. That's not listening to the director and following your director's wants. You know, very. That's just that's like massive. That's massively important. You have to do that. Yeah. So the people who who have to plunk and listen and play, you know, the the the, the methodicals, they're going to have a much easier time working with directors because they're going to listen to them a lot more carefully than, than the viscerals will by nature. Sure. You know what I'm saying. So, so it's, it's, it's not, not all, it's not all I cracked up to be, to be a visceral, trust me, get you into a lot of trouble. And it did get me into a lot of trouble in the early days until I became aware of the problems that are associated with being a visceral. Yeah. But, but that would be my say, I would say John Landis was one of my all time favorite experiences working with him. We recorded a hundred piece plus in London to do the score unlimited budget. It was a fantastic experience. Wow. And then the second one, the last one, was working with uh, Don on, uh, on 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 Phantasm Five. It was done over a very long period of time. I had a full year to write the music. <laughs> no joke, a full year. So I was able to put in when I wrote wrote, wrote the you know like the hour hour of uh, of music ahead. I could really, really, really take my time and go and listen to a whole bunch of different pieces and listen to a whole bunch of different, get some whole bunch of different ideas and really try to try to create something very, very, very specific and highly detailed and really granular throughout the movie. There was nothing rushed about it at all. Aside from, you know, you were talking about 
how in recent years you've kind of changed your method of working and writing not to picture. I mean, I, I would imagine that that can buy you some time because you're not waiting around for a cut and stuff. But aside from that, why were you given so much time on this particular project as opposed to, you know, compared to the other Phantasm films? Um, they were, they were, they were busy cutting away and Don brought me in very, very early to start, you know, getting ideas and, and going and going to work on it. You know, I mean, I don't think he was aware of the fact that I've, you know, changed my method of working where I, you know, start writing themes without picture or not. Well, that wasn't, it wasn't intentional on his part, but he just decided to bring me in really, really early while they were still cutting in some stuff and doing a whole bunch of work. They had to do a lot of CGI on that. So that, that took forever, you know, for that. And that's where the year went. They already shot the movie. I mean, it took them a year to get everything together with all the CGI. So that was, that was the only time ever where I've had unlimited time to write the themes. And boy, was that fun. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was such a pleasure. I didn't have to look at the clock. I didn't have to worry about, oh, my God, am I going to meet my deadline? Do I, can, I, can I really spend a day on these four bars? Yes, <laughs> I can. Yes, I can. Yeah. Yes, I can for one. So good. Okay. I'm going to make these next four bars. It's absolutely amazing. You know? So, so that, was, that was really a lot of fun. As we wrap up, I wanted—I uh, was wondering if you want to talk a bit about audio impressions and what it is and why you decided to do it and if it's available to people. Well, it, it's a—it's a. What I appreciate is we are first and foremost a, a techno music technology company that I started, which is for creating. I created a patented formula for how to do real-time divisies on the fly. You know, like when you have a string section and they got to split up their notes to the violins, play the top note, the second violins, play the one underneath the basses, play the bottom note, et cetera. Well, I came up with a, with a, with a process for, for how, how to do all of that. So you could actually just play on the keyboard and actually have the thing do all the correct divisions as you play. Huh. So you're not having to go in there and do one note at a time, especially if you're doing chords and so on. And so I went out and recorded my own samples uh, for the strings, winds, brass, and everything else. And so um, we're still in development on this. I came out with one thing uh, five years ago, which was my first beta system for, for doing the strings. But in those days, actually, it was, yeah, we started like eight years ago on that one. But it required a lot of computers. It was a very cumbersome beta system. And I sold a couple of those just to try to get, you know, to see how people would fare with it. And it was just too cumbersome. It was my first effort. In the, in the in the field of hiring programmers to put my stuff together, and now we're working on something that's a lot easier for people to use, where it's just a, a plug-in, and you get a you, you can do all this stuff just from the plug-in immediately, which which can only really do now with the computers with the power that they've got now. When we first tried that out, you could never have done that as a plug-in. It would have been, and it was, you know, stacks of computers because they just didn't have the compute power or the RAM. Be able to do all that stuff yeah so um can't talk about too much specifics right now because it'll get me into trouble uh in terms of uh my competitors <laughs> yeah listening in uh but uh you know hopefully within the next six months or a year i'll be ready to really put something out again that is that is uh that is meant for mass market so it's uh, basically going to be a tool for musicians and keyboard pads and midis and stuff like that. Yeah, it, it's basically being able. It, it, it's really designed primarily for 
for people who are either hobbyists or people who play on stage or like playing, you know, playing live. It's it's a it's um, it's a very much of a, a performers oriented uh, sample library and and sample process. Yeah. Because you can't really take your conventional, very expensive, you know, two three thousand dollar string libraries and just put them under your belt and just go out there and start putting plunking down chords and, and play a full string section uh, on stage. It's, it's not really that doable, you know, with, with conventional sample libraries. Our sample libraries are designed specifically for that kind of thing. So they're designed for people that are going to be playing, that can play, you know, because there aren't any sample libraries out there really uh, until ours comes out that is really designed for performers, not for, not people just play one note at a time, which is what typically all sample libraries are made for for now. Has this been row tested on a on a film score? Oh yeah, my data system is all over a Phantasm Five. Chris, I just want to thank you for coming on. I, I found this very fascinating, and I had a lot of fun talking to you. I appreciate it. Oh, I had a lot of fun talking to you too. It was very nice talking to you, and uh, you're extremely extremely good questions i can't i in fact they're so good i can't think of anything i would say gee he should have asked me this now i can't think of anything i of course need to thank chris stone for generously lending his time and knowledge to the show if you've been enjoying the podcast the book scored to death conversations with some of horror's greatest composers is available on amazon barnes and noble and many other places you buy books or you can order a signed copy from me directly just contact me through scoredtodeath.com. You can also find and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scored to Death. Scored to Death, the podcast, is now available on most podcast apps and distribution sites. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes or on whichever provider you use to listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews will help the podcast get recommended to potential listeners and raise awareness for the show. My other podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, and most places you find podcasts. And on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Sat Sleepovers. You can find Chris Stone at ComposerChrisStone.com. And I should note that the short clips of music used in this episode were used strictly to put aspects of the interview into context, to audibly illustrate specific things discussed, and for educational purposes. And the soundtrack discussed on this episode was Tailspin, which is available on CD from Optical Media International. And also, the soundtrack for The Stupids is available from Entrada. Thank you so much for listening to Scored to Death, the podcast, and please come back in two weeks for another in-depth discussion with one of horror's greatest composers. Mm-hmm.